Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. If you brought a Bible and you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can uh, get a jump on things today and turn to 2 Timothy in the New Testament, chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We've been doing a series called DNA, and specifically DNA, the spiritual identity of Grace Harvest Church. We felt it was really important because we've noticed that we've had a number of people join us in the last year, a number of new people that have come among us, and we have felt like we needed to kind of share with you who we are, share our identity with you. Now, we know that that's not important unless Jesus is central to our identity, amen? As long as Jesus and the gospel, the good news about him and all he's done are central to our identity, then it's worth sharing. But if Jesus is not central, then sharing our identity doesn't really mean anything. But he is central. And last Sunday, I know Pastor Noah took that subject, the the centrality of Jesus, the fact that we are a Jesus-centered church, and he shared it with us. Today, I'm going to share with you the fact that Grace Harvest Church is a scripture-following church. We are a scripture-following church, and uh, I want to review where we've been the last two weeks. If you're new and this is your first time here, I, I want to kind of take you where we've been the last couple of weeks and, and give you the opportunity to you know, kind of catch up. So first of all, two weeks ago, no, actually now three weeks ago, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, something like that, three or four weeks ago, uh, we looked at eight different things that kind of identify who we are, eight characteristics that identify who we are as a church. You might call them values. But number one, that we are a Jesus-centered church. Number two, we're a scripture-following church. That's what we're going to look at today. Number three, we're a Holy Spirit-welcoming church. Number four, we are a presence-seeking church. We seek the presence of God to be actively among us. Amen? Manifest. Not just in principle, not just an idea, but the reality of God's presence. When God is near, things happen, lives change, people taste and see that the Lord is good and their lives are changed because of that. Um, next, we, we're going to look at the fact that we're an expressive worship church. And we're a church that believes that the body, the mind, the spirit, the soul... All of our being is to be engaged with God in the act of worship, both in our everyday life and the things that we do. And when we gather together and we sing to Him, we believe that these bodies have been given to us by God to express our love for Him. And that's why we do the things that we do. Next, we look, we're going to look at the fact that we're an authentic church. And if I could define what that means, is we're just real. We're real. We're real when it comes to our humanity. We're real when it comes to the fact that God cares and loves us exactly as we are, as we read today. By the way, on that song, I want you to notice, can we put up the chorus? Is it possible to put up, not the chorus, but the um, the part that says, you know, you you love me as I am, but you're not going to leave me there. Uh, You you love me as you found me. Um, Is it possible to put that up? Anyway, as he's putting that up, I'll finish it. Number seven, that we're a people-reaching church. And number eight, that we're a disciple-making church. The next part, there it is. Now, I want you to notice this. This, is, this really captures a big part of my theology, and I believe the biblical theology. 
and that is that you love me as you find me. A lot of people, they, uh, you know, they, they like the idea of a God who's not requiring them to change in order to know him and love him. And you know, that's the reality of the gospel. The gospel accepts you. Jesus loves you right where you are. Some people are like, you know what? I want to go to church. I want to change. I want to be good. I want to do the right stuff. But I can't go to church until, you know, I get my act together, until I clean up my life. I'll hear people say that. You know, I, we've had people even say, I can't go to church because I don't have any nice clothes. And I say, that's okay. You'll be welcome at our church. Right? It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter if you've got tats all over your body and piercings everywhere. I don't, we don't care about that. And God loves you and doesn't care about that either. But let me just be clear about something. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to rock your life. And the rest of this particular bridge is also going to come true. Your love's too good to leave me here. So let me just make this clear about the gospel. The gospel embraces you, accepts you, and loves you right where you are. But the gospel and Jesus and God at work in your life is going to change you. Going to change you. You cannot get close to God and not change. You cannot get close to God and not become more holy over time. You cannot be close to God and maintain living a certain way. There are going to be things that are going to fall off your life and change because God is real to you and He's in your life. And believe you me, any of you that have walked with Him for any period of time, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's not that, it's not that we're going to sit here and put a bunch of pressure on you. We're going to preach truth, love you, try to model a life before you, but just the presence and the truth of God, the truth of the Scripture is going to mess with you. God's going to mess with you. And that's all there is to it. And you cannot escape that. And that's, that's called discipleship. That's called being a disciple, which means an apprentice, one who is a student and following Jesus to become like Jesus. That's the life of the Christian. So anyway, and the last one is a disciple-making church. We're a church that, that believes that you're going to be made into a disciple. Today, we're going to talk about the Scripture. And I have a, a cute little story to start out. A pastor challenged the Scripture's authority to a little girl. So here's the story. A certain pastor observed a little girl standing outside of the preschool Sunday school classroom between Sunday school and worship. She was waiting for her parents to come and pick her up so she could go to big church. The pastor noticed that she clutched a big storybook under her arm with the title, Jonah and the Whale. Feeling mischievous, he knelt down beside the girl and asked, What's that you have in your hand, honey? She said, this is my storybook about Jonah and the whale. Um, Well, tell me something, he continued. Do you believe that story about Jonah and the whale? The girl said, why, of course I believe it. The pastor inquired further. You really believe a man can be swallowed up by a big whale, stay inside him all that time for three days, and come out okay? She declared, yes. This story is in the Bible, and we talked about it in Sunday school today. Then the pastor asked, can you prove to me that this story is true? She thought for a moment and said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. Finally, the pastor asked, what if Jonah's not in heaven? The girl put her hands on her hips and sternly declared, then you can ask him. (laughs) 
Amen. It's a little preacher right there, huh? You obviously don't believe. All right. You can, you can ask him where the people that don't believe are, right? So I want to start out today. My first point, if you're taking notes, is that the Bible is inspired and shows us God, Jesus, and ourselves. That's really important. The Bible is inspired and shows us God, Jesus, and ourselves. And the first, I guess you could say, sub-point to that is that the Bible is inspired and profitable for everything. So look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It'll be on the screen as well. Look at what it says here. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's the word inspired. Okay, it's the Greek word inspired. Breathed out by God is a Greek word inspired. Is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, just a quick side note here. This word man is anthropos, which means human beings. It can be translated men and women, okay, anthropos. So just so you so it could be translated that the person, human being, man or woman, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now let's look at that word inspired, right? All scripture is breathed out by God, inspired. You know, the Bible exposition commentary says this. We must not think of inspiration the way the world thinks when it says Shakespeare was certainly an inspired writer. What we mean by biblical inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit on the Bible's writers which guaranteed that what they wrote was accurate and trustworthy. Now let's be clear about something. Most of the biblical writers did not write the Bible under some kind of trance state. It wasn't like they became passive and kind of the Holy Spirit took the pen over and they just kind of went "Eh," and and became, you know, automatons, robots. That's not what happened. Rather, the Holy Spirit came upon them and influenced them and moved them in their thoughts to write exactly what God wanted them to write while at the same time not bypassing their cultural influence, their background, the place they lived, their own human story, their own personality. None of that was bypassed. God had the ability to take each of the biblical writers and influence them and yet keep who they were intact. And that's powerful. I want you to really think about the implications of that. And the reason we know this is if you look at the biblical, you know, the books of the Bible, go look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah is much different than Isaiah. In the person, in the personality of the writer. But when you look at the message, there is this thing that, Um, biblical scholars call the scarlet thread of redemption. The scarlet thread of redemption starts in Genesis and it runs through all 66 books of the Old and New Testament, ends in the book of Revelation, and it's this ongoing story of Jesus and his good news all through the Bible from beginning to end. There's this overarching story. There's this big story of God and humanity, God and creation, creation in its lost and broken state, and God intervening, and it it stretches throughout the entirety of the biblical narrative and the biblical story. And yet God kept every writer 
and their personality and their background and their story intact. That's the beauty of inspiration. Now, here's an important point that I think uh, it sounds funny, but it's really important that we catch it, and that is the Bible is not God, but it points us to God and to Jesus. This is an important point. You might not think it's that big of a deal, but look at John 5, 37 through 40. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to the religious leaders because they were always giving him a hard time. How many of you ever noticed that when you read the New Testament Gospels? that Jesus had trouble, not with the normal people. Jesus had trouble with the religious leaders. Makes guys like me go, ooh, I better watch it, right? Careful. And, and I want you to see what Jesus says in John 5, 37. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. These are, these are leaders. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. I think when Lorraine was giving her message this morning, I'm standing there and I'm going, man, when I get up and preach, it's going to sound like her and I talked ahead of time. Because she was talking about how the people of God had his word and his love in them. They heard him. They had his wisdom. Right? So look at what Jesus says, verse um, 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. That means living in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You searched the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. I've met a lot of people like this that believe the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And it's not. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? So we have to keep that clear. The Bible itself is not God. It points us to God. It leads us to God. In fact, what the beauty is, is Jesus is called the Word. Did you know that? He's called the Logos, or Logos, the Word made flesh. So he's the embodiment of all the Scripture teaches us. When God wanted to give his, I guess you could say in some ways, his final word about who he was, he didn't give us a book. He gave us Jesus. Jesus is the final word on the character and nature of God. But, and this is where it gets really important, we don't know who Jesus is without the book. Right? So there isn't a revelation of Jesus outside of Scripture. It's so important we get that because you'll hear some people out there who are rejecting the authority of Scripture. They're rejecting the Bible, and their reason is that, you know, I'm just following Jesus. I'm just trying to follow Jesus. But the reality is we have no revelation that is a true, authoritative trustworthy revelation of Jesus and what's he, what he's like without Scripture. So if we reject Scripture and its authority, we reject Jesus and His authority. Does that make sense? Y'all alive out there? Okay, I just want to be sure. See, he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You can hear the heartbreak in Jesus because he's here among his own people. He's the full revelation of the Father. He's showing up and he wants them to know what the Father is like and he loves them and he's trying to redeem Israel. And he's in their midst and they've spent their entire lives studying the Scripture. They've dug in. They know it backwards and forwards and yet they missed Jesus. It's so tragic. 
The scriptures testify of God and his character everywhere. The clearest image we can get of God is Jesus. And Jesus is primarily revealed to us in the words of the Bible. If we would see God, listen to this statement, if we would see God, we must see Jesus. And if we would see Jesus, we must look into the pages of the Bible. Right? So everybody following that? The next thing, you know, along with that is the scripture then shows us Jesus and who obviously shows us what God looks like. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. A lot of scripture today. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. This is the New Living Translation. Look what it says here. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, the time this was written was 2,000 years ago, He has spoken to us through His Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, He created the universe. So you want to know how the universe came to be? You look at Jesus. Because it's through Jesus that the whole universe came to be. This is before He was a man, in His pre-incarnate state, when He was with the Father and the Holy Spirit, before He ever took on a body, before His name was Jesus officially on earth. He was the second person of the Trinity. He appears throughout the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And as the Lord, he comes and he talks to Abraham with two angels. You see Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. He's foreshadowed in the sacrificial system. He's the lamb slain. He's he's all of the sacrificial system within the temple and within the tabernacle. He's everywhere in the Old Testament. And now in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, God is speaking to us through his son. And then look what it says. He He promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, He created the universe. Now look at this, verse 3. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And He sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. Who is the He here? If you look at the sentence structure, it's Jesus. Now, so I want you to think about what this is saying. And He, Jesus, sustains everything by the mighty power of His command. Another translation says he upholds all things. So so I just want you to think about this for a minute. The entire universe, if you've ever wondered what's keeping it all together, what's keeping it from flying apart, what is, Colossians tells us that in him all things consist, that Greek word means are held together. Jesus is the glue of creation. He's the glue of the universe. He's the one that's upholding everything. You want to know how all of the planets are doing their rotations and moving throughout you know, the universe and every little bit of space dust and every asteroid and every comet and everything that's moving throughout the universe, it's all being directed and upheld, held together and held in its, its glue is Jesus. And it always has been. That's the Jesus we serve. The problem is, is when, he, when we see him coming down in human form, we forget that he was before he was a man. He always has been, and he is the power that upholds all things. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And when he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. And then the scriptures show us God's salvation story and plan. From Genesis through the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, God reveals a story of His rescuing and restoring power. Every one of the 66 books of the Bible drip with God's plan to save humanity 
from the power of sin, death, and Satan. Though the Bible is a collection of 66 books written by 40 different authors, 40 plus authors, over 1,500 to 1,600 years of time, it is tied together with that ribbon of one story, that scarlet thread of redemption. This story is the story of God's relentless pursuit of humankind to rescue and restore us and all of creation to His original intention. That's why I've told you this many times. People think when they die, they're going to go to heaven and be in heaven forever. The Scripture never teaches that. Heaven is temporary. God's going to restore all of creation. You and I are going to dwell on earth with God. That doesn't mean we won't be able to take all kinds of tours of all of the solars, I don't know. I don't know what God has in, minds, but the scripture, has in mind, but the Scripture says He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to redeem this earth by fire and make it new again, and it's going to be beautified, and it's going to be recognizable. There's going to be things about it we know, and yet it's going to, be, it's going to take on a whole new look and way and feel. It's not going to be corrupted anymore. Everything's going to be remade, and we're going to dwell in a new heavens and a new earth with Jesus Christ, with God. Because that's God's intention and it always has been. Heaven is not your final home. Heaven and earth are going to get married. They're going to come together. Heaven's coming to earth. That's God's ultimate plan. And the two of them are going to get married and become one. And all things are going to be restored again. And we're going to dwell with God in this new heavens and this new earth. Everything made new and right and pure and beautiful again. And we'll never experience sin, sorrow, death, cancer. All of it will be gone. There'll never be another car accident we'll have to deal with. And every molecule of the fallen creation will be made beautiful and right again in the presence of a holy God. Amen. That's not pie in the sky, and that's not fantasy. That is the plan of God. And you know how we know it's true? We know it's true because Jesus rose from the dead. The, the corruptible body of death took on incorruptible. Amen. So what do the Scriptures also do? They show us ourselves and our need for God. Look at Hebrews four twelve and 13. For the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and, is, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So what, is, what happens? God brings his word to our life, and his word goes in like a sword and cuts us open and exposes the reality of what our intentions are, what our thoughts are, who we really are, and we need that in our life because here's the reality. You don't know yourself as well as you think you do. In fact, here's the reality. None of us really knows ourselves. You think you do. You don't know yourself well. God knows you perfectly. And that's why there are times in our life we can be going along with a huge blind spot. We can't see what's going on right here. And God uses a person. God uses a circumstance. But He comes to us in His Word and He lays us open. Not so that He can embarrass us. Not so that He can be angry with us. But so that He can show us our utter desperation and need for Him. And we can flee to the gospel. Flee to the cross. Flee to Jesus and His shed blood and the power of His Holy Spirit and be changed and transformed. That's what God wants to do in our lives. See, the Bible shows us everything we need to know about the essence of being human. We see ourselves and our lives in its pages. That's why if you go in the Bible looking for perfect people that got it together because they found God and then they got it all fixed up and they're perfect, 
right? You're going to find that actually in the Bible, really messed up people who are in need of redemption, and through time, they're being changed by God. But you're going to find that they're a lot like you. In fact, they're just like you. They're just as messed up. Their families are just as messed up. They have the same kind of sin. They have the same kind of secret stuff going on. And God goes after them to change them and heal them and restore them and make them like his son. Amen. I want to illustrate this quickly because I am almost out of time and I have not been able to get to the main illustration I want to share with you. So we're going to go really fast. Are you ready? Look with me as we illustrate this point. I want to show you the importance of why the Word of God must be what we build our lives on. Okay, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. You'll recognize this story, but I want you to notice, just as you read it, notice as Jesus illustrates perfectly the difference between the two men and what's happening here, the two houses that are built. Notice it, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, notice that, does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Now contrast, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So in this story, we see two men, two houses, two storms, two foundations, and two results. By the way, I just want to say off, right off the bat, it might be the same storm, just applied to two houses. It seems to have the same intensity in everything. So look at what happens here. The wise man starts out, the wise man does the words of Jesus, and the foolish man does not do the words of Jesus. House number one is built on a rock. This house represents the life of the person. You're building a life like you'd want to build a house. The materials and the methods you use will determine how well the life will stand the tests of this life and eternity. Doing the words of Jesus is building on the rock. House number two is built on the sand. When you build your life on the sand, you're building upon a works-based religion. You're trusting yourself. You're building upon human philosophy man-made wisdom, you're building upon the pop psychology and the human philosophy and political ideology of our time. You'll never endure the storms of life or the final judgment if you're building according to your own thoughts, wisdom, philosophies, political affiliations. If you're building on anything other than the Word of God and doing it, when the storm comes, your life won't make it. It'll get washed away. And one of the Truest ways to know how deeply rooted you are in Scripture and how deeply you rooted you are in really in Jesus is to ask yourself what happens to me when storms come. Do I immediately go into being angry at God, angry at people? What what happens when the storms come? Or do I find myself digging into Scripture? Do I find myself standing, even though it doesn't mean you don't feel the wind. See, the thing about houses, you ever been in your house and there's a bad windstorm or storm outside and you can hear it, it's buffeting the house. You can hear the wind, it's shaking things. You might even have a shingle or two fly off. And you're very aware, I'm going to have to check the house out when this storm's over. 
But you don't have a fear that it's going to blow away or that it's going to crumble because you know it's got a good foundation. Right? But if, if your house, your life is built upon something other than the Word of God, and not just the Word of God, but doing the Word of God. Remember the difference is the doing. Doing the Word of God. Then when the storms come, you're going to get shaken. You're not just going to get shaken. Your life is going to collapse. And what normally happens is life collapses in a ruin, in a mess, and then we turn around and look for someone to blame. And we don't realize we've been building on the wrong foundation all along. Storm number one, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat on the house. Seems to be of the same intensity and destructive potential as storm two, so maybe they're the same storm. House number one, the result was it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. You know, in many parts of Israel, it's necessary to dig down anywhere from two to 30 feet to find solid bedrock before you build a house. Wow. House number two, the result, it fell and great was the fall of it. The only difference between the two men and the two houses was this simply. The foolish man heard the words of Jesus and did not do them. And the wise man heard the words of Jesus and did them, applied them found ways to bring them into his life, to integrate. Now, I want to finish with this question. Are you wise or are you foolish? Where do you look for the ultimate authority in your life? When you make decisions, what drives your decisions? Do your own opinions, feelings, thoughts, and imaginations direct your life? Or does the scripture truly have any real authority in your life? You see, listen, if we think that being a part of a church and reading the Bible is just about making us feel better, I want to go to church on Sunday and sing some uplifting songs, and I want that guy up there to talk to me and tell me things that make me feel better. And I believe, obviously, when we're aligning ourselves with truth, we ultimately will feel better. But if we begin to think that this whole thing is about just some kind of positive, uplifting, self-help, let's be good, uh, this is my way of being successful in life. I'm going to add this to my portfolio, my retirement portfolio. Church and Bible is a part of my whole kind of scheme to be successful. But we're not really thinking about how I can integrate what I'm hearing own it, imbibe it, let it get into my bones so that when I face circumstances and situations in life, my first response and my first reaction is not just what my emotions are saying or, or, or what I see with my eyes, but rather, what does God say? Even though I'm shaking, I'm feeling the storm, what does God say? I can put my feet down on that rock, and I can know it can't be shaken. That's our life. That's why having Scripture as authority, and this is why it's so important that we get to know the Scripture, because in it we find God, we find Jesus, we find God's big plan for salvation, and we find who we are. We learn it all in the pages of the book. Why don't you stand with me? Have you ever let the Bible read you? And we talk about the Bible, right? I'm going to read the Bible. 
what you start to learn the longer you walk with God and the more you read the scriptures, the scripture reads you, shows you your stuff, the good, the bad, the ugly. Have you found Jesus within its pages? Have you turned to him to rescue you from the power of sin and death? Really, that's why we look. We're we're looking for him. That's why we look at the Bible. We're looking for him. We want to know him. We want to know the living and true and real God. Amen.